Welcome to the Fulfilled Podcast. The podcast designed to spark fundraising inspiration for your nonprofit through thought-provoking interviews with world-leading fundraising experts. Fulfilled brings a unique interview style approach where we ask the most important questions of our expert guests to help nonprofits excel in their fundraising efforts. Feel inspired and feel fulfilled with knowledge so your nonprofit can continue to make a positive impact and create change for a better world. Hi everyone, Jake from Fulfilled. Today I'm out near Melbourne Airport at Precision Fundraising, where I'm speaking with the 40-year fundraising veteran, Leo Orland. Leo, welcome. Thank you, Jake. It's a pleasure to have you here. Good, good to be here. So thinking back 40 years now, what was your first role that you had in fundraising and what were you doing? Well, my first role was uh, with World Vision Australia and I started as a copywriter and it was at a time when a lot of copywriting, fundraising copywriting was very new in Australia um, and I didn't have any book or uh, coaches or you know workshops to go to. So virtually I had to, to literally learn on the job to do it. And that was really great because in those days as well, uh, working at World Vision, you, I wrote everything uh, from everything from a welcome letter to all the follow-up letters for regular giving uh, people through to advertising, press ads, direct mail. So I had to write everything, which was fa- a fantastic experience. It was great. Yeah, great. And you've been in it for nearly 40 years now. I have. You're extremely passionate about it. I am. What is it about fundraising that you love? Well, I think ultimately the reason why I love it the most is because of what fundraising does in the community and in the world. I mean, it was brought home to me. uh, One of the time campaigns I was involved with when I was at World Vision, we ran a campaign for the eradication of guinea worm in Africa. Now, guinea worm is a horrible parasite that incubates in a human body for about nine months, grows to about a metre long, incredibly painful. Uh, and about in the mid-80s, there were 15 million people would die annually from this guinea worm. So it's involved in a campaign to raise money. And then, oh, about seven years ago, eight years ago, I got an email from former CEO of World Vision remembered that I was part of this campaign and said, thought you'd be interested in this article. And it was a National Geographic article and it was talking about how guinea worm had been eradicated. And I thought, wow, I mean, if that's not what fundraising is about, that's the reason why I do fundraising because the world's better through fundraising. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wonderful. It must have been extremely rewarding to hear that. Extremely. Yeah. yeah. So for over 15 years of those years, you were committed to working with World Vision Australia. Yes. How did your time there develop you as a fundraiser? Uh, well, I had two stints. One, I had I started off as a copywriter at World Vision, and then I went from World Vision and became fundraising manager at Urala for three and a half years. One of the great things about fundraising manager at Urala, you had to do everything. So... Um, the issue when I was at World Vision, you tend to be specialised. But going into Urala, I learned every aspect of fundraising. Uh, during that time, for example, wrote the specifications for 
uh, software program which is called Dynam. Um, oh. <laughs> ah, Domain. 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 Yep. Um, and so I wrote the specs for that and, and did everything from public relations. I remember hanging from a, a 30 foot crane above a Christmas tree mm. just as Santa Claus through to you know, doing, put, putting together a regular giving program and doing the, everything. So you learn, I learned every aspect of fundraising there. And then from there, I went back to World Vision and headed up the direct marketing uh, for World Vision. Uh, but having those three and a half years of learning um, a broad understanding, having a broad understanding of all the aspects of fundraising was good groundwork for then also when you do when I went on to do relationship fundraising at uh, World Vision, um, I had a, a really strong basis and basic understanding of what was required to do fundraising. Mm. Well, what stands out as some of the more memorable moments at your time at World Vision? Uh, I think most memorable moments would probably be around certain campaigns, which are just were like groundbreaking campaigns. You'd have your day-to-day -day kind of campaigns, but ones which were just groundbreaking, would never been done before. Um, for example, I remember um, there was a problem we had in World Vision at the time, uh, and it was associated with there was a particular mailing which. Uh, was successful, but after a while it had reached its sort of peak income and it was starting to go into decline. So we needed to find something to replace that mailing. One of the things that uh, becoming part of World Vision was that you also had access to other World Vision offices around the world. And we had an annual meeting of all the direct response fundraisers met usually in the US. And at that meeting, somebody came up with, oh, this is an idea that we've used and it was successful. Yeah. I looked at it and immediately I said, that's what we need to fix the problem that we have in Australia. So I brought the idea back to Australia and the idea was called a bounce back. Never been done before in Australia. Um, and the amazing thing about that particular bounce back is that the first one we did was so difficult because it was a jigsaw puzzle and it had to be a jigsaw puzzle with a bounce back bounce back being where it's sent to a sponsor uh, and they have to write a message for their sponsored child and return it and then it would have to be sent to the sponsored child yeah. well jigsaw puzzle to survive that whole process that was quite complex. Anyway, uh, and at the time, I remember the head of child sponsorship at the time said to me, because I had to go to him and say, look, to do this, uh, it's going to go way over budget. So he said, well, Leo, if it doesn't meet, why, sh oh, that's right. He then said, why, why should I do it? I said, well, because I believe it will solve this problem and I think it will increase significantly the income uh, instead of us going into decline. He said, well, Leo, that's fine, but if it doesn't work, will you resign? I said, I will resign. Right. So 
I remember when we sent out the mailing and I would go in and every day I would go down to the, the processing room to make sure. <laughs> anyway, we finished up more than doubling the income, doubling the number of child sponsors that we recruited as well as the, it was just amazing. But that idea of innovation, that idea of coming something with new, and, and there were several, quite a number of occasions where we were trialling or doing things that had never been done before in Australia, not necessarily hadn't been done before elsewhere, we would often pinch ideas. But what we made sure we did, we took those ideas and just didn't copy them. We tried to see how can we make them even better than those ideas. Uh, and that was just a fantastic time to to do that and, and brings a lot of, I mean, the Guinea Worm campaign was an example of that as well. Um, another campaign we did with major giving donors. I mean, all of those we, those concepts we, de we developed. We took from uh, the meetings we had in the US, but brought them back and did, just didn't copy them straight. We, we modified them and we made them uh, our version of those and they all work just outstanding. So that was something um, that you used to develop yourself, it was the leveraging of the international offices? Yes, uh, plus also attending conferences, uh, going to, and there are, I mean, just go on and on because, for example, um, I got, um, this is before Relationship Fundraising as a book was uh, put out by Ken Burnett. I became passionate about relationship um, direct response. Um, and there was a book that was published back in the, uh, to about 1987, about relationship direct response. And I just got fell in love with it. I said, this is the way to go. Uh, but I had to learn more about how do you apply that um, so, again, being part of World Vision, I was able to travel around the US to talk to some of the best relationship marketers, including visiting the office of American Express in, in New York, and talk about how did they do it, how did they um, practice it. Yeah. And just those learnings and be able to bring those learnings back and applying them. And, uh, just great times. Yeah, great. Mm. Now, World Vision does such a great job at um, at their fundraising efforts. They lead the way, as you say, they continue to innovate. Mm. What can other fundraisers from outside of World Vision learn from what World Vision is doing? Well, it's, it's not just World Vision. I mean, it's, it's looking at what's, what's working around the world. Uh, I keep up to date with everything that's going on in fundraising around the world and just looking for new ideas and constantly Constantly on the lookout for what's new, what's fresh, uh, what's the what's going on. Uh, I balance that too, because the I, it's one thing to be able to take ideas and looking for ideas, and ideas can come from anywhere. Uh, the reason why I gave the example of going to American Express, they don't necessarily have to come out of fundraising; they can come out of the corporate world, come out from anywhere. You're always looking for ideas, and they can, uh, as well. I try and look for those ideas, but I also balance that with, with understanding key fundraising principles and how they then apply to those ideas. So it's not just grasping and, hey, we've got a new medium and we've got a new idea, 
but also how do you make sure that the new medium you're using or the new idea you're doing also keeps faithful to what I believe are essential fundraising principles that are there. And, and, and if you marry the two, in my view, you've got nirvana, you've got a perfect marriage match. <laughs> yeah, yeah, great. And can you remember a time where you've tried to innovate, but it didn't necessarily pay off, but from it you became a better fundraiser from learning about it? You know, it was funny, somebody asked me that the other, not a couple of weeks ago, uh, and it's only saying like a strange answer, but no, uh, not so much from things that I innovated that didn't work, because I, the one thing that every time I did any innovation, I didn't just pinch it. I worked very hard to make sure that all the elements were right and didn't go forward until we've got you know, the audience, the offer, the ask, the, the creative, and have all the elements are right uh, because it's a, it's a big risk. You know, and that's fine, don't mind taking risk, but you want to make sure you've got all those elements working together properly. And that meant working as a team with a group of people, make sure everybody's on the right uh, page working together. Um, so it wasn't so much from those innovation ideas because they don't recall any of them. In fact, all of them seem to have worked extremely well, but there was a lot of hard work behind getting to that point. Yeah. It wasn't easy. Um, where issues, if you want things that didn't work, are things that I think afterwards I go, aha, because I didn't apply the, the principles that I should have applied. I sort of forgot the key principles. So, um, you know, when you talk about the innovation, successful appeals that you've done, I yeah. mean, that comes from a team effort. And it you've is led a team, team effort. You've led a team of um, 21 staff at World Vision Australia. Yes, that's true. What, what goes into getting the best out of your team and a strong team dynamic? Um, well, in my view, it was very much about passionate, passion for the mission. Uh, it, was, it was all around around that. Um, not all the staff, but most of the staff, uh, myself especially, had spent time on the field visiting, speaking with families, speaking with children who World Vision was helping. Um, and when you go through that process, you, you, it just fires you up. It's, again, I said earlier, for me, fundraising is not about raising money. It really is about the difference that you make. Uh, and for example, when something, a campaign doesn't work, uh, I really feel the pain. I really felt the pain because I know it wasn't just, oh, we didn't meet the target. That money is, was, was vital in order to fund a particular project. You know, so if the money wasn't there, either the project was going to be affected or they have to find money from somewhere else or whatever. And I found that very painful personally. Mm. That it wasn't, oh, damn, it didn't reach the money, didn't reach the target. No, it wasn't about the target. It's about the impact that it has on, on programs. And for me, those staff, and World Vision was very good in those days with, with that motivation, is the reason why 
where vision exists, reason why we do fundraising. Uh, and that's what, you know, glues you together, is that passion. Yeah, great. And just before we uh, started filming today, you said the average um, career span of a fundraiser is usually around three years, three to five years? Three to five years, yes. Yeah. What's kept you going for so long? Uh, well, I think the, uh, <laughs> I think in the end, it was because again the experience I have, largely through World Vision, of visiting the field and seeing the people who are being helped, and a number of times having my heart shattered by the stories. I don't know how many times I've uh, talked with mothers, uh, and we both finish up tears pouring down our eyes and having a heart broken you know, because the mother's lost her children and for, uh, uh, it's very hard for me to sometimes go into that because I start to feel quite emotional when I start to remember some of those stories. So it was that. The other thing was, the, the, other, the other thing that has always driven me, still drives me today, is that as a professional fundraising, I have to keep up to date with my knowledge. So I'm a passionate reader. I get on average about three to four textbooks a month. Uh, I probably have the biggest fundraising library in Australia by far, by far. Mm. Uh, I'm passionate about knowledge, passionate about learning and never giving up about learning and I don't think I keep saying the day that I stop learning would be the day that I'd probably need to be buried and <laughs> put underground somewhere. I'm just passionate about learning. Yeah. Well, let's hope you keep learning then. But <laughs> <laughs> well, at some point, point I'll <laughs> yeah. stop, but anyway. So what could you recommend are the three best resources for fundraisers? Are there three books? Is there three articles that you can even recommend? Uh, well, books, I can just go on and on, on. but one of the key books I always recommend is um, Achieving Excellence in Fundraising. It's up to volume four. Uh, it's also one of the key textbooks for um, the CFRE and doing the CFRE exam. I was involved with the CFRE board for six years, so I know that, and I was chair of the CFRE exam for a number of years as well, so I know that very, very well. Um, but I look at particular particular authors like people like Tom O'Hearn, Jeff Brooks, uh, Ken Burnett. Uh, the, I follow those guys religiously mm. as well because the, um, I'm totally passionate about relationship fundraising and have been since the mid '80s. Um, uh, so any anything by those guys, anything they do new, I'll grab. Uh, yeah, mm. uh, there's a whole bunch of Samoja, <laughs> I mean, just go on and on. Yeah, and you mentioned just a bit earlier as well that you don't always need to look what other fundraisers or NGOs are doing out there. You can look no, to the commercial world. I, absolutely. Do you have any examples of how you've looked to the commercial world for guidance and what you've been doing? Well, I talked about going to American Express in the New York office. Um, and one of the issues that the American Express office had was silos because there's a problem had back at World Vision as well. 
um, what you tend to do is you have different um, areas of an organization. And American Express had this issue. They had, under the American Express, you have American Express gold card, platinum card, the blue card, you then have American Express Travel, American Express Insurance. You had all these areas, right? Under these areas were departments. And you had one database. No one talked to the other department. So they'd all just do these mail blasts mm -hmm. to the database. And they wouldn't know that another department was also sending mail blasts to the same people. So, and, um, and World Vision wasn't any different. Basically, you had different areas. You had child sponsorship. You would have had um, uh, auxiliary groups. You would have had uh, a single gift. You know, there were all different areas that were raising money in one database. And so everybody would just go, oh, I want to do a mailing. Well, they didn't consider that maybe somebody else wanted to do the mailing to the same people. You know, and well. so, so I wanted to see how American Express uh, dealt with that and the way they dealt with that uh, and has influenced me uh, in an interesting way in that what they said was instead of having products and teams around products, they developed teams around people. Okay, mm. And so they would have people who are were, I don't know, the, the different categories of 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 um, clients, or um, uh, and they would then have people, for example, from the different areas. So one from insurance, maybe from the platinum card, blah blah, and so they would have an integrated integrated communication and what call a, a stream around. A particular customer type, mm. there and people, and so the, like the product people were there to provide offerings, but around a customer type. Um, that influenced one of the ways that influenced me. Uh, by the way, breaking silence is one of the hardest things to do. Um, way that influenced me was the way in which then designed the way in which we communicate. Um, to donors. Generally, most fundraising fundraising departments work in the same way as that in old American Express model. You know, we have products. So we've got major donor product, we've got a bequest product, we've got um, mailing product, we've got regular giving product, and they just blast away based on the goals set by that. Uh, and so you look at a 12-month calendar and so each, and then on, and so for example, let's say your calendar is a financial year calendar, starting July, going through to June, and then on the left-hand side of the column, you would then have different activities. So there'd be a direct mail activity, there'd be a regular giving. Uh, but that to me is exactly what is not donor-centric. If you're donor-centric, instead of products going down the side, you have donors. And what's the appropriate communication for that group of donors? Or, and so it may be direct mail, it may be face-to-face, -face, it may be this, it may be that. 
Um, and so the communication is around the donor and where the donor is now and the journey you want to take them, where do you want to take that, that relationship with them? It's, a, it's sort of turning it completely on its head. Um, mm. that, that for me came out of um, what I think is best, sadly, out of the commercial world. I, I, there's a number of things out of the commercial world. For example, surveys, everybody's going to surveys. Well, I think that's a problem too because surveys have been, I think, hijacked. Uh, most people use surveys for fundraising. Surveys should not be used just for, uh, for fundraising. If you look at the commercial, they really want to know, are you happy with the, it's, it's, uh, are they, you happy with the service? Uh, are you happy with the, you know, what, what was received? I mean, why isn't fundraising driving that? I mean, it's interesting now in the commercial world, you can't breathe without them sending a survey saying, what did you think of our service? What did you think? Are you happy? They, you got any recommendations? They listen, they want to listen to the customer. Yeah. Whereas fundraisers say, no, no, we don't want to listen to the customer. We want to sell them more. We want, so let's send them a survey so we can sell them more. I mean, no, sort of. Yeah, not doing it right. Actually, learning um, about the customers' needs, uh, donors' needs. Sorry, I'm getting caught between commercial no. now. <laughs> and I think that's the sad part for me is that the commercial world, I believe, are leading us. Where I think if we're doing it right because we should be. We don't have products to sell. We sell good feelings. We sell um, the joy of giving. That's what we sell, uh, and it's got to be a joyful experience. We stuff it up with just the way in which we're so aggressive in our fundraising. So, you know, just my personal. Yeah. One of the advantages of being a 39-year veteran is that I can be a grumpy old fundraiser. <laughs> so, and let that, fly. No, it's a good point, though, around yeah. aggressive fundraising. Yes. I mean, what's some examples of that? Well, um, just, for example, the survey is one, um, but also things like, not listening to the customer. I'm, I have this thing about, for example, um, direct mail, I'll say it now. Um, I just don't like the way, the aggressive nature in which direct mail is, is put many times. The way it should be is that you engage the donor first and then you start and ex tell the story of a need around one individual here is the solution to that and here is what we're asking you to do to provide the solution to meet this need of somebody like this it should be that way not upfront give us all give us we want you to give us this money now let me explain why i want you to give me this money i mean i tend to not like that approach i tend to I, and I tend to like it being more genuine and real rather than formulaic. We tend to be much more formulaic now than, than it becomes something which we talk from our heart. Mm. About. Yeah, do you think that's a key reason why um, fundraising teams are really struggling to connect with younger donors now? I'm, well, I'm not sure about that. Uh, I just think it's how you need to connect with, with donors full stop. You know, uh, for me, it's being genuine, being real, 
not being technique driven mm. almost to a point where uh, uh, there, there's some it's the danger for example neuromarketing which is happening is the danger that you fall into let's trick the donor or trick the customer neuromarketing is coming starting to grow very strong but it's about tricking the the customer into giving the response that you want them to give. Uh, if you are genuinely donor-centric, if you're genuinely, genuinely relationship-based, you don't go about, oh, let's see how much we can trick the donor into giving us money. You know, That may work in the short term. It won't work long term. And we're seeing that effect. We're seeing that See what had happened in the UK. We're seeing the results happening in the US, and the latest studies coming out of Australia saying that donors, people are not trusting mm. fundraising anymore. My, my opinion, if you want to know what the problem is, isn't the donor? Look in the mirror. <laughs> You're the problem, not the donor. Yeah, it's a good way. Of They're talking about it. donor fatigue. Donor fatigue was talked about back in 1983. Yeah. We create the fatigue, not the donor. Mm. I mean, we are the. Uh, sorry, getting back onto my <laughs> old fundraising. <laughs> no, that's great. I mean, it's um, it's great to hear because you've seen so much over the years. You've seen fundraising change, but it's great to hear how um, things still remain true to fundraising and donor fatigue, for example. And yeah. so after World Vision, I think it was around 1999, you made the transition into That's becoming right. a consultant. That's right. How did you find the change going from in-house fundraiser to fundraising consultant? Extremely difficult. Mm-hmm. Because when I'm the manager, I make decisions. When you're the consultant, you recommend, but you make, don't make the decisions. So sometimes somebody you know you'd make a recommendation but they say no we want to go in a different direction and you just go mm. no no don't do it. but anyway and that i found that hard because i've been used to you know i'm i make the final decision so and i i'm accountable for it so i make that decision it really hard and all of a sudden you're not accountable for the final decision it's the head of fundraising or whoever you're talking to, the clients on the client side. So I struggled with that for a while. But on the positive side, I was able to work with so many different types of organisations and so it was just a great learning experience of understanding. I learned, I made some mistakes very early on, which is, I mean, oftentimes, I mean, even when I started World Vision, most of my learnings came out of making mistakes and that's when I discovered for example uh, I remember when I started uh, at World Vision and I was looking I was doing the direct mail and direct mail was fairly new back in this talking about 1980 it was fairly new in Australia um, and I remember uh, I was writing and I had a process with uh, what I was following for writing, which worked reasonably well. Um, but then one day I got a copy of this letter which had been done by World Vision US. And I looked at it and said, wow, wow, that's magnificent. So, and I remember my boss at the time said, oh, Leo, don't follow the Americans. Don't do that. I said, okay. 
So what I did was I took the American style and I copied it, but didn't tell the boss. <laughs> and it achieved an amazing result. And I went, oh my God, mm -hmm. that's rubbish. <laughs> you know, uh, it worked, you know. And so I started becoming really hungry that's when I really started getting hungry. I wanted to learn more and I wanted to find out what they were doing over the US, where they wanted. I started really finding that energy to to find, because the idea that I, I knew everything and I was just starting out was absolutely ridiculous. When I look back now, totally ridiculous that I would have all the knowledge after one or two years, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and still today I don't have all the knowledge after 39 years. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's great. And as part of what you do for um, your consultancy uh, as total fundraising, you go in and do a fundraising audit. Yes. So what what is a fundraising audit? Well, it's basically it's an independent look at uh, the fundraising program, uh, and basically what I do is, and the reason why. Um, I've been doing it now since, my first one is 1994. That was the first one I did. Uh, it allows me to literally pull apart a fundraising program. Uh, one of the key things I look for uh, is, and I've found this goes with just about every organization, and I read it about two years ago, I read somebody who, talked about a marketing audit and they came to the same conclusion that basically 75 to about 75 to 80 percent of the issues you face are internal issues they're not external issues they're internal issues so what I try and do is find out where all the internal what are all the internal issues what are all the politics the conflicts the barriers try and discover those things um, and there's a process I use to find those things, and it's usually, it's like a confessional. I will, it's one on one, close the door and say, what you're gonna say is confidential and just let her out, let it come out. Uh, and from that then, because out of that review, you can make a whole series of recommendations about what needs to be done from a fundraising point of view, but it's also critical to understand what are the challenges, blockages, and unless you address those as well, just having a series of recommendations to say, you know, oh, you should be doing this, you should be doing that. But unless you address those, those key internal issues, they won't get done. Yeah. So I, I, I look specifically for those key, key areas, which are, and they could be anything from, um, one department not lighting fundraising through to, um, it could be that, for example, that uh, you have the wrong staff on board, uh, or there's a lack of expertise, or there could be a whole bunch of reasons why. And so until you address those things, to just say, well, you should be doing this kind of activity, that kind of activity, without also addressing those other issues, yeah, mm. get too far. Yeah, it must be quite difficult coming in as an outsider and addressing the internal issues like that. Uh, no, I, I find it I, part of becoming going as a, an independent auditor. You are literally independent. I don't have all the I'm not wearing all the politics. 
I'm, you, you become an extremely good listener to what people are saying. There's only one time I ever had a problem with that. I mean, <laughs> that was a few years ago, but uh, I had to tell the truth. I said the problem with this, this particular organisation was the CEO, and you had to adjust the CEO. Uh, I was never invited back. <laughs> the CEO didn't last too, too long either, by the way. He lasted about two years and he was gone. But yeah. so you know, but it was the truth. Yeah. Uh, yep. Do you feel that the CEO is often a blocker to great fundraising? Uh, let me put it another way. Not so much a blocker, but the CEO is incredibly important to, to achieve fundraising success. You need the CEO supportive of it. Mm. Uh, and some of the best organisations from a fundraising point of view have outstanding CEOs who are extremely supportive. Yeah. It's a recurring trend actually I hear when interviewing fundraisers. So where do you feel you've been able to have the biggest impact with um, your client base over the last 20 years? Um, well, it's, it's about bringing them to understand uh, what I would call good fundraising practice, you know, understanding what fundraising is really all about, uh, understanding the key principles that you apply in fundraising, and I think also uh, encouraging encouraging people to who are struggling a little bit within certain organisations, encouraging them, supporting them in their in their struggle, you know that. You can either go and meet with a CEO or a board or whatever uh, to help. I hate to use the word educate, but it's to help them understand better. Uh, Because sometimes being an independent person, you're able to say things that the the internal person will say, but often is not heard. Yeah, and you, you do a lot of training and mentoring, especially with young fundraisers. Yeah. What's generally the advice that they need to become better fundraisers? Look for an environment that will allow you to do good fundraising. And if it doesn't, then move on. Yep, that's great advice. <laughs> so I guess on a fundraising strategy now, what have been some... Um, key changes in donor engagement that you've seen over the last 40 years? Um, I've really seen a lot more commitment to donor-centred fundraising. Uh, I still think though today, one of the things I've done a number of times in workshops I've run, is I'll start off by asking people to put up their hands who believe in donor-centred fundraising, and the majority of hands will go up. And then I take them through a questionnaire, which I ask them to mark themselves off. At the end of that, I then ask, how many of you practice donor-centred And you're probably lucky to get a handful, put their hands up. Uh, people still don't know how to apply fund- donor-centred fundraising, even though they believe in it and they hear about it, they don't know how to apply it properly. Um, and so I think I think certainly that's uh, a big issue. And the other thing is, um, it's become much more sophisticated. Data has become much more critical than it's ever been, and will continue to become much more critical. I am concerned 
I've seen practices that I believe are very poor fundraising and I think the reason why they're poor fundraising is because they're driven by short-term goals. If you are really donor-centric, you are looking the long-term. You're looking at the relationship. Relationship doesn't happen in a short period of time. If you want a relationship, you've got to take the long-term view. And so much is, and there are agencies that have been out there that have pushed this short-term approach. Uh, it damages the relationship with donors in the end. And I also believe that um, it's just, it's driven largely by, how do I say this nicely? CEOs and boards who just don't understand, who take that short and push and push for, we need to raise the money this year, we need to raise the money next year. I understand the need to do that, but you know, you can't come at any cost. So what do you think still remains true to practicing fundraising even after 40 years? I think the principles are the same. Uh, I recently read a book by um, uh, Harold, Harold Seymour's book. I reread it recently and he was talking about, this is written back in 1966, uh, one of the first fundraising books ever written. Uh, and a lot of the principles still are true today as they were in 1966. Um, I know this is true as well because one of the things I do is I do a lot of fundraising in Asia, uh, travel all around Asia doing fundraising and oftentimes um, when I go to a new country they'll always say, oh Leo, but this won't work here. And I say, oh that's fine. It always works here because if you follow the principles, the principles work irrespective of what country, what culture, the principles stay the same. Um, Ken Bennett, in his book Zen of uh, Fundraising, uh, has, has gone through those key principles. Just a wonderful book, mm. Zen of Fundraising. Um, but understanding those principles, they, they just will be, as long as we are remain as human species, those principles will always apply. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, wonderful. Mm -hmm. And um, in terms of the donor journey now, um, what's your advice to clients you work with or just anyone generally about attracting new donors? Uh, well, my first thing would be to say is don't attract new donors until you've mapped out the journey. Mm. Otherwise, it's a waste of money. Yep. Unless you've got the whole journey mapped out, the second gift strategy, what, how are you going to say thank you? All those things are critical towards because uh, and we see this reflected in retention rates where we see people getting in new donors and then they find like 35, 40% in America, it's down to under 20, 25% new donors going on to give a second gift. Um, well, Australia is fast following that pattern. Um, it's uh, until you've you've worked out what the donor journey is and how to say properly thank you, how to reflect the impact that their donation is making on donors. And I think that's one other issue that I think 
Well, I've one of the things I again learn over the um, various practices that where an organisation gets up and talks about um, what's been achieved because of the support, blah blah blah. I find that's okay. Where it's more impactful is when they get the beneficiary talking about what that what that has meant to them in their life. Mm-hmm. That's more powerful than the organisation. So, oh, because of you, this person's been helped. It's much stronger if the person says, well, this is how you've helped change my life. Right. It's much more powerful. Yeah. It's those sort of key things that you bring in. Uh, Ken Bennett has set up for, in the UK called the Commission for the Donor, Commission for the Donor Experience, I think it's called. And it's all about how do you create a great experience for donors? But they were, wow, this is really worthwhile what I'm doing. Yeah, do you find that um, many fundraising teams now just put uh, the nurturing phase of fundraising a bit to the side in the too hard basket? No, I think I'm seeing that a lot of organisations are trying to learn learn how how to do it. Uh, I think they just don't know how to do it. Uh, And often still find that people are starting to look at that after they've done the acquisitions, too late then. Acquisition should all be ready before you start send out your first acquisition appeal. Yeah. It'll all be laid out, ready to go. You know, because I mean, and I'm not just saying this. There's a number of um, pieces of research which show that the way you say thank you will influence whether you get the next gift. And you talked earlier about innovation um, yeah. and the importance of innovating. Yes. So is your general advice when approached, say, to a new fundraising team is look to innovate or go back to basics and sort of craft out what you're doing internally first before you innovate? Yeah, good question. And it reminds me of another story. Um, there's a guy who I love very dearly. He was, I employed him as a copywriter. <coughs> He's one of the most innovative, creative guys I know. And it's I'd still work with him from time to time. He's just a lovely guy. And I remember he did his very first direct mail. He'd never done direct mail before. And he came uh, and he said, Leo, I've got this amazing idea. I said, oh, fantastic. And he was really creative. I looked at it and I said, oh, that's really creative. I said, "Um, where's the letter? Oh, we're not doing a letter. I said, okay, so you're doing a direct mail piece without a letter. Uh Uh-huh. So I remember saying, he, he, when he gives talks, he, he, he talks about it himself uh, because it changed his view of things. He said, before you break the rules, learn the rules, and then break the bejeebies out of it. Yeah. But don't break them until you know what they are, so then you can answer the key question, why? Why am I doing this? Well, this is the rule, but in this case, this is why I think this will be better. So in 2013, you were awarded from the FIA. Oh, yes, the Arthur Byrne Award. Yes, the prestigious um, Arthur Byrne Award. Um, How did that feel? Well, it was a very emotional time for me because I got that at the FIA conference in late February, but in January I had attended uh, Arthur Byrne's funeral, funeral. Arthur Venn was a very strong mentor of mine. Uh, I loved Arthur Venn when I was a young fundraiser, and I was a young fundraiser once. Arthur was a, an amazing mentor. 
uh, where a lot of learned a lot from Arthur. Key principles. He used to say things like, um, "You spell fundraising H A R D W O R K." He always taught that. Uh, and so, I went to his funeral in January, and that was a very emotional thing because I knew Arthur very very well. Uh, and then to receive the award the same year after that, I was just I, was, I struggled. Mm. Uh, I still struggle today because Arthur. He is one of the founding fathers of modern professional fundraising in Australia today. Yeah. So it was a real honour yeah. to receive that. And what's some advice that um, Arthur Fern's given you that's always stuck? <laughs> well, <laughs> he and I used to always disagree about one thing. He always used to say, Leo, major gift fundraising is the only kind of fundraising. And I said, Arthur, because I used to do direct mail, he said, Arthur, remember, the direct mail that I do produce, I through that, I can pay for your salary and your uh, fees. But, but one of the things that Arthur did teach, which I always, which I don't think is being taught the way, it's still not, it's not being taught today. Arthur used to teach about being proud he talked about two things. One was being proud of your profession. And for example, when I travel overseas and I ask you what occupation, I'm always right for fundraiser. I'm proud of my profession. I love my profession. So Arthur taught me that. The other thing that I think Arthur taught um, really well was, as I said, for Arthur, um, he used to tell the story of the um, the difference between bacon and eggs. You know, I talked the difference between uh, a pig and hens, and pigs provide bacon uh, and hens lay the eggs. Well, pigs are an example of commitment. And he talked about to do effective fundraising, you have to be committed to the cause. And I remember one time teaching that, I got that off Arthur and then teaching it to a group of young fundraisers and I had this young guy got up and said, but Leo, when I work for an organisation, they don't hire me for my commitment, they hire me because I'm a professional. And so I don't believe in being committed. Fine, I said, um, fundraising is hard work and when things get tough, and it will be tough, fundraising is tough work. Where's your commitment? Uh, and he wouldn't accept that. He was gone within 12 months, no longer doing fundraising. And for me, for example, it's reflected for me in, I have in front of me my, my work at my office at home, I have three key pictures. Two of two young girls who I met in my trips with World Vision who broke my heart, their stories break my heart, and one of them I can't tell because I, I'm a blubbering mess, and the third one is my daughter. And whenever things go hard and tough, I look at those pictures and I said, that's why I do what I do, you know? It's that commitment yeah. to, again, not raising money, commitment to wanting to make a difference in people's lives.
Um, and you mentioned earlier as well that um, you were on the board for the CFRE. I was, yes. So how important do you feel the CFRE is for emerging fundraisers? It's, I think it's a critical. I, I, I talked about how what, one of the things Arthur taught us was being prior, proud of our profession. Uh, and i got to say, you know, going through the 80s, one of the key struggles we had was having fundraising being recognised as a profession. And we saw that reflected some, for example, in the late 90s, what happened was organisations would employ marketing people, then they'd employ communications people. They weren't hiring fundraisers, but they were hiring marketers and communication people to do a fundraising role. Well, hang on. There's a huge, there's, there is some similarities, but there's also a significant gap between marketing knowledge and fundraising knowledge. There, there is a significant difference between the two. Mm-hmm. And to be recognised by CEOs, by organisations, or even by the public, that fundraising is a profession. So CFRE helps, most of the way, I don't need the CFRE personally, but I do believe in the CFRE because I believe in the profession and needing to promote fundraising as a profession worthy of, of, of people. And so CFRE is a recognition that I'm a qualified practicing fundraiser. That's what the CFRE recognizes. Uh, and you have to go through a process uh, of um, um, the process of filling in the form and all the different um, passes that you have to make, sending a four-hour exam and every three years you've got to show you've kept up your knowledge, you've you've, um, kept up with your practice of fundraising, etc. And what did it mean to you to be on the board of the CFRE International? Uh, It meant a lot to me because one, I made some very strong friendships with people from all around the world who were on the board. Um, there some really great who are still friends today some very very wonderful friends I met some uh, all we all had in common that passion about fundraising and fundraising as a profession uh, and being also chair of the exam just understanding the process behind what I mean it's not the process for developing that exam is an incredible process. One I wasn't aware of, uh, having sat on the sat on the, as chair of the and being on the exam committee for the six years, and chair for about four, I think, of years of that. Um, I got to know how um, professional it is that exam is in terms of the way it's been, it's set and managed. Um, it was a great experience. Yeah, great. So um, you've seen a lot of change. Over I've the, seen a lot of change yes. over the near forty years that you've been in the fundraising. Lots of people process. coming in, lots of people going. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Is is that something you've noticed more and more of the the timing uh, the time of fundraisers for the organisation is getting less and less? Well, no, I think it's about the same. Well, I, the reason why I know so is because I go to conference. I've been going to conference now for over thirty five years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I go in and I said, oh, it's all these new people here. Yeah. There's some old faces, which is one of the key reasons why I go, um, to just catch up with colleagues. Uh, 
But gee, I see a lot of new faces. <laughs> and then I come to following you. God, there's a whole lot of new faces here. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, that's great. And what do you think will change most in the next five to 10 years in the fundraising profession? Um, I think certainly the commitment to retention has to be has to be the way to go. Uh, I think, I think, and I hope that this may seem a really strange thing to say, but we get back to good fundraising practice, uh, and I think we're going to be forced to be that to happen to us. One because donors, we're really switching them off. Two, if we're not careful, the government will step in. And we've seen that in the UK. Uh, so I think the commitment and understanding of what of of creating a, a joyful experience for donors. Ken Bennett, in his book called um, uh, it follows. His first book was Relationship Fundraising. The second book was Friends for Life. In the book Friends for Life, he talks about, uh, it gives a case study of a, of a village called Botton Village in the UK and the process they in which they then, a donor would come on board and what they would, the promise, they gave the new donor a set of promises. UK went through the turmoil it did about three four years ago, absolute turmoil, almost destroyed fundraising. Um, there was, if you go to Sophie, you'll see there the case study. They went and visited Bottom Village after the crisis and see what effect did this crisis have on Bottom Village. On just about every organisation in the UK, it just pulled down their fundraising. It was just, it was, it was terrible. They went to Bottom Village, and Bottom, Bottom Village was still practicing this amazing um, fundraising, uh, you know, relationship fundraising principles, very strong, fund, the best, if you want, fundraising principles. They were still practicing it then. Their income went up because they had, and I believe it's going to be a word that people are going to hear more and more of, and the word is trust. Because fundraising is based on trust. You break that trust, my God, you're in deep trouble. Mm. So how do you earn the trust? Because trust, you don't just ask for it. You've got to earn it. How, and I think the, the next four to five years, Australia, as other parts of the world are starting discovering, trust is going to be the key understanding that people have to learn. How do you... How do you earn that trust? And that will overcome all sorts of difficult times if you can build that trust. Mm. Yeah, it's a really good way of looking at it and um, how that will change. Um, you've achieved so much in fundraising. Mm. Is there anything left that you want to achieve? Uh, I still I, I still think the, the same things I wanted to achieve many years ago the idea of pride and profession. I still think that there's a long way to go still on that. I think um, that everybody understands donor-centered fundraising and relationship fundraising um, and the practice that's involved in that. Uh, they're the things that I, and, and, and there's a third thing because it goes alongside with trust. 
is honesty, uh, not manipulation, not technique, but it's honesty, real honest, just basic honesty uh, there, and, and carrying through with what you've promised. Mm. I think those are things I still think, I mean, they, they were around years ago. And I think, in my view, in some ways, in some, because of various reasons, I think we've tended to lose the way a bit. And for me, fundraising wants to be restored back to where I think it should be. We need to do that. We need to have pride in the profession. We need to create that commitment to relationship fundraising and there and and honesty. Yeah, great. Um, well, we're down to the final question now. Leo Orland, mm-hmm. what's your final piece of advice to inspire, fulfill fundraisers, to make a positive impact and create change for a better world? Well, in my view, it's getting out of your office and sitting down and listening. Listen to donors, listen to your beneficiary, the people you're helping, and feel their passion, feel their feelings, listen uh, to them, and let that drive what you do. Let the beneficiaries that you're helping feel their pain, feel what they're feeling. The donors feel their passion, their enthusiasm. Feel that and let that drive you. Great advice. Mm. Leo, thank you very much. Thank you. Mm.